Hello, greetings and salutations. All right, last episode we talked about how you raise a patient's systemic vascular resistance, stroke volume, cardiac output, yada, 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 blood pressure with medications. So today we're going to talk about what do you do when you need to lower a patient's blood pressure, right? So the opposite of this. So elevated blood pressures can cause end organ damage and poor tissue perfusion the same way that shock can. So when a patient comes in sick from hypertension, we're going to have to act fast to help improve perfusion to vital organs. Now, we've all seen patients that come in with blood pressures of like 220 over 130, and they're simply there because they checked their blood pressure and noticed it was elevated for whatever reason, or they sprained their ankle and they just happen to have this blood pressure in triage, or they feel a little funny and they're concerned and now they're hypertensive crazy style, right? And while having blood pressure that high persistently is what we refer to as ungood, it really isn't an emergency, right? I want to talk about true hypertensive emergencies because this is probably one of my favorite things to treat, right? We could actually make a huge difference in a very short amount of time. So a hypertensive emergency kind of by definition is these severely elevated blood pressures, almost always more than 180 over 110 and typically higher than that with evidence of end organ damage, right? We like, we like to say that end organ damage. So how do you tell the difference between hypertension and a hypertensive emergency? Mainly, we look at symptoms, and then we look for evidence of end organ damage, whether that's through imaging or lab work or whatever. In general, if someone is texting on their cell phone and they appear perfectly comfortable, I'm probably going to wait to slam their blood pressure down until I have labs back or I have some evidence of end organ damage, right? Lowering severe hypertension too rapidly when a patient is basically asymptomatic can actually cause relative hypotension in capillary beds, and then that can lead to lack of tissue perfusion, so end organ damage in that way. So if that makes any sense, it's a very delicate balance. But if they come in hypoxic, altered, poopy looking, then I'm going to start antihypertensives before I get anything back. Okay. There are seven true hypertensive emergencies, right? And a quick history and physical can really narrow down whether we're dealing with run-of-the-mill hypertension or if we need to just be pulling some medications like stat style. Okay. We really need to ask the patient about a few general symptoms, right? What's their urinary output? Are they having chest pain? Are they having back pain? Are they short of breath? Do they have neuro deficits? Are they altered? Are they having any changes to their vision, seizures, et cetera, et cetera. And then we want to know some background information, right? Have they had any recent trauma? Are they using drugs, methamphetamines in the state of Montana? Um, what is their gestational status? So are they knocked up? Okay. And now that we know kind of what we're looking for, what we should be thinking about, let's kind of talk about specific disease states. The pathophys, right? Target blood pressures and, and the medications that are really ideal to hit our treatment goals. Okay, so get excited. It's going to be super fun. The first hypertensive emergency is probably the least exciting, right? It's the hardest to pick up on just a quick history and physical. And a lot of the time it may not even come to the emergency department because it's not nearly as dramatic as the other hypertensive emergencies, right? So I'm talking about acute nephrosclerosis. So basically an acute kidney injury due to hypertension. And this is actually a very, a fairly common occurrence, right? It typically presents almost silently, which means patients may be completely asymptomatic. And typically lab findings are like hematuria and usually it's microscopic hematuria. So they're not even going to see it or notice it. And then elevated creatinine levels. 
Now, mind you, these can also be chronic in patients with chronic hypertension. And so it might be hard to figure out, is this a new kidney injury or is this chronic kidney disease in the setting of hypertension? But if it appears to be new, the right thing to do is lower the blood pressure. Now, in most forms of hypertensive emergencies, the goal is to lower the blood pressure by 10 to 20. I'm going to go with 20 percent in the first hour. So take their systolic blood pressure. 20 percent of that is what has how much you're trying to lower it in the first hour. And it's by a total of 25 percent within 24 hours. Right. There are a few exceptions to this general rule and I'll talk about them. But in renal failure from hypertension, this is a good goal. And personally, I don't care what medication you give to lower this blood pressure, right? Just don't give nitroprusside. Not that we really ever give nitroprusside, but nitroprusside is metabolized through the kidneys. So when they're not working properly, this isn't really a great idea. It can actually cause cyanide toxicity. So you can give levetalol, nicardipine, nitroglycerin. I don't care. They're all decent options. I tend to reach for nitroglycerin, although I don't really know if I have a great reason for why I do that. All right. So let's move on to some more fun forms of hypertensive emergencies the cardiopulmonary emergencies, which are way more dramatic and therefore way more fun. The first one to think about is the patient that comes in with elevated blood pressures complaining of chest pain. Now this can be one of two different hypertensive emergencies. The first one to think about is hypertensive emergency with cardiac ischemia. Now I'm not really talking about like a STEMI because it's unlikely to cause significant hypertension and hypertension doesn't typically cause an acute MI per se. I'm more talking about demand ischemia from elevated blood pressures. Remember, your coronary arteries fill during diastole. So if your blood pressure is so high that there's little cardiac relaxation during diastole, the coronary arteries don't fill well. So then you have poor cardiac perfusion. Plus, if the heart is having to contract so hard against high afterload, its O2 demand is going to be that much higher than it otherwise would be. So what do you think we're going to give to combat this? Typically, it's nitroglycerin, right? This will reduce afterload, and it helps with venodilation to promote better coronary filling. The other good option is a beta blocker, right? So like labetalol, which is quick and easy to get the blood pressure down. Now, the labetalol tends to cause a more significant drop in blood pressure over other beta blockers like metoprolol, which is better at actually slowing the heart rate down, okay? Esmolol is another option right? It's, it's in drip form. It's quick on, quick off. These medications kind of work the opposite of inotropes that we talked about last time, right? They promote increased cardiac relaxation and typically decreased cardiac oxygen demand. So again, we're targeting a blood pressure drop by about 20% in the first hour and 25% in the first 24 hours. But really, just titrate it to chest pain, right? That should tell you whether or not they're having better perfusion of their heart. All right. The other major cardiovascular hypertensive emergency is dun, 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 aortic dissections. Now this one's super fun, right? Obviously not for the patient, but for me, it's super fun. Think about what you know about the typical aortic dissection patient, right? Tearing chest pain that radiates into the back, right? They're hypertensive. They have unequal pulses, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the next time you actually have a patient with an aortic dissection, they're going to have none of that. <laughs> but if a patient does describe the pain as ripping, so on their own without us like prompting them, they're probably about 10 to 11 times more likely to have an aortic dissection. And also if they have a focal neuro deficit, they're more than 30 times more likely to have a dissection. So chest pain plus a neurodeficit is an aortic dissection. Why? 
because if you dissect the major blood vessel in your chest, you're, you can easily carry this to other branch vessels, right? So like your carotids, your spinal arteries, and it causes strokes. I could talk a lot about aortic dissections because they're really scary. They're easily missed. They're highly fatal, but I'm not going to digress on that pathway too much today. All right. We'll do that another time. Blood pressure management in aortic dissection is really kind of the outlier of blood pressure goals. Most hypertensive emergencies, we target that blood pressure drop of about 25%. That's not the case in aortic dissections. The goal is as low as possible. So really we're shooting for a systolic blood pressure less than 110 and a heart rate less than 60, right? So the drop in heart rate is actually super important because the fewer rushes of blood going past that dissection flap, the fewer the shear forces. So this is hopefully going to reduce ongoing damage to the aorta. So it's bad form to keep blood pressures high, keep heart rates high and turn an aortic dissection into an aortic rupture, right? Because that's what we call a very quick kill. That's bad. Beta blockers are a must. You have to drop both the heart rate and the blood pressure significantly. And there are very few medications that do this well. So I like Esmolol in this situation, right? Although sometimes they are going to need a big labetalol bolus while we're getting the drip kind of set up. But I'm of the mindset that you target the lowest blood pressure a patient will tolerate. So like titrate meds until the patient gets a little bit goofy and then back it off a little bit, right? I'm only kind of kidding about that. This is really the only time you're shooting for a massive blood pressure drop immediately. Like you can take them from a systolic of 210 down to a systolic of 110 and not feel bad about it at all, right? Now, sometimes beta blockers are gonna lower their heart rate down to like 50, but they're still gonna have a blood pressure with systolics of 150. So at this point, you gotta add another agent. As long as there's a beta blocker on board to suppress any type of reflex tachycardia from other medications. Nicardipine is an option. I tend to go with something like nitroglycerin or nitroprusside. I'm not a huge fan of mixing calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. So that's why I like nitro a bit better. And I'll talk about why in a minute. All right. So that's aortic dissections. The last cardiac hypertensive emergency is by far my absolute favorite thing to treat in the ED. Okay. The little old lady comes in with sudden onset of horrible shortness of breath. She's hypoxic. She's got elevated blood pressures. What is this? It's flash pulmonary edema. Yay. And this occurs because a patient's afterload increases typically quite rapidly and the heart is unable to pump blood against such high pressures, right? And then they get this big catecholamine surge, which causes even a higher afterload and it just exacerbates the problem right? This most often occurs in people that have underlying diastolic dysfunction. So their heart doesn't like to relax very well at baseline. If their heart can't relax, and then it has to push against these elevated pressures, the fluid starts to back up into the lungs. And this usually happens crazy fast. Like they'll go from fine to really hypoxic in a hurry. Like sometimes so quick that you don't even see the pulmonary edema on chest x-ray. It shows up like later. The good news is it's super easy to treat, right? BiPAP is usually a good option, right? You're going to try to push that fluid back into their pulmonary vasculature. And then you also want to try to reduce their work of breathing, right? Because to reduce the anxiety that they're having from drowning in their own fluid. And it can lower blood pressure, lower the catecholamine surge, and promote better cardiac outflow that way. And then lots of vasodilation. 
Now, most of us go to nitroglycerin because it's readily available, but how much? It's a great question. A lot. So I typically start patients on a drip of like a hundred mics a minute and titrate from there. That sounds like a lot, right? There's some people that are actually going to load with nitro first, either sublingually or IV with up to 800 micrograms. And I know this sounds like an insane dose because with ACS drips, we start at like five micrograms, but higher doses actually promote arterial dilation over venodilation, which is what we're actually aiming for in this situation. And if a hundred sounds like a lot, consider it this way, right? One sublingual nitroglycerin tablet is 0.4 milligrams, right? So it's 400 micrograms. And we give these Q5 minutes, which means we're basically giving 80 micrograms per minute. So it's really not any different than giving su three sublingual tablets in sequence. So now don't feel so bad when you start a drip at 100 mics. It's really not that bad. Feel better? Good. Okay. So let's move on to the neurologic hypertensive emergencies. Now, again, there's three of them. First is the hemorrhagic stroke, right? So your blood pressure gets so high that a small blood vessel in the brain bursts and cause bleeding. This can also happen in the eye. So it happens in the retina as well, but I'm gonna mainly talk about the ones in the brain. This is the main reason we get a head CT for stroke patients, right? TPA in hemorrhagic strokes is a big no-no. Remember, a lot of patients with strokes have elevated blood pressures at onset. So the blood pressure itself doesn't tell us whether or not it's hemorrhagic or ischemic. It's kind of like a chicken and the egg scenario, right? The blood pressure gets too high, blood vessels break, and they lead to a hemorrhagic stroke. However, blood pressures tend to be elevated even in ischemic strokes. There's this area of brain not getting any blood flow. And so the blood pressure is gonna actually raise naturally to try to get blood flow around the occlusion and perfuse that ischemic penumbra in an ischemic stroke. So in hemorrhagic strokes, we wanna aggressively lower blood pressure to prevent more bleeding. But in ischemic strokes, we actually want to keep their blood pressure elevated because it's probably helpful unless you need to give them TPA, right? If you need to give them TPA, then you need to aggressively lower their blood pressure. So what's the drug of choice in hemorrhagic strokes? Lycartopene. And I use this basically with any neurologic condition when the blood pressure needs to be lowered. Sometimes beta blockers like labetalol can be used as well. But again, you can run into the situation where you end up needing to mix the two. And I personally believe that you run the risk of causing high-grade heart blocks if you do this. So I don't like to do it. Just pick one and stick with it. This is one of those scenarios where blood pressure target is probably a little bit off the 25% mark, um, but it kind of depends on their presenting blood pressure, right? We're aiming for a goal less than 160. And this usually ends up being pretty close to the 20 to 25%. But just keep titrating nicardipine up until you hit the blood pressure that you're going for. So less than 160, and then cut it back to three milligrams an hour. That's kind of a good steady state dose once you hit the blood pressure you're looking for. And then you can go slowly back up from there if you need to. All right, the next neurologic hypertensive emergency is hypertensive encephalopathy. Now, I don't believe this actually exists in the way that we sometimes discuss it, right? I don't think an elevated blood pressure is gonna make you feel a little bit loopy and a little bit confused. And I just don't feel right and I feel a little dizzy, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I do believe in something called PRESS, which I think is the true form of hypertensive encephalopathy. PRESS stands for Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome. 
and it has a new name now that neurologists kind of renamed it, but it doesn't make a fun acronym like PRESS, so I'm going to keep calling it PRESS. This can manifest as altered mental status, like coma altered mental status, vision changes, seizures, etc. On MRI, these patients have significant edema, mainly throughout their posterior circulation, although it really can be anywhere. So if it's that, that edema is to the brainstem, that's what causes altered mental status, decreased level of consciousness, and coma. It can be in the cerebellum and lead to discoordination and those kinds of things, or it can be in the occipital region and they'll come in complaining of essentially vision loss. Now, hypertension isn't the only thing that can cause press, so some immunosuppressants can do this as well. But I really think you have to be truly altered with true neurologic deficits to count as a hypertensive emergency. You have to have legitimate objective findings on imaging, not just the, I feel kind of funny, right? Which is how we sometimes refer to hypertensive encephalopathy. Again, I reach for nicardipine in this patient and target a, a, a drop in blood pressure of 20% basically immediately. All right, last but certainly not least, eclampsia. This is a true hypertensive emergency. So, and I'm going to preeclampsia and eclampsia. So eclampsia is characterized by intractable seizures and blood pressures that are typically greater than 160 over hundred in a woman that is more than 20 weeks gestation or less than four weeks postpartum. Now the blood pressure here isn't nearly as high as other hypertensive emergencies, but nonetheless, this is a condition that requires aggressive blood pressure management. First thing per, first, give magnesium. And I mean a lot of magnesium. Six grams over 15 minutes, a lot of mag. If IV access is a problem, you can give five grams in each butt cheeks. So 10 grams IM. And then once you load them, you put them on a mag drip. So like seriously, a lot of mag. The only real problem is magnesium can cause pulmonary edema, which can really be a problem because preeclampsia can also cause pulmonary edema. And so then you might be fighting pulmonary edema from both sides. But that being said, magnesium is the immediate treatment. Um, there other, the other thing is to manage blood pressure, right? So blood pressure medications. Lobetalol is safe in pregnancy. And we give large increasing doses of lobetalol, right? So 20 milligrams, then 40 milligrams, then 80 milligrams every 10 minutes. If that doesn't work, you can switch to hydralazine, right? Give 10 milligrams every 20 minutes for up to three doses. And hopefully at some point in time, the blood pressure is going to drop below the goal of 140 over 90. However, there's only one true treatment for eclampsia. Delivery. Get baby out. Unless they're like four weeks postpartum. And then you can't take the baby out because it's already out. So you're stuck with mag and labetalol and I guess prayer, right? All right. Those are the hypertensive emergencies. So a few things to remember. Blood pressures greater than 180 over 120 with evidence of end organ damage. A blood pressure drop of 20% in the ED and 25% within the first 24 hours, except in dissection, where the goal is as low as a patient tolerates. Beta blockers for aortic dissection, nitro for pulmonary edema, NICARD for neurosymptoms, mag and labetalol for eclampsia. Titrate to effect because overcorrection can cause end organ damage as well. All right. Good, great, grand, wonderful. Have a lovely day.